0: Preparation for spiritual warfare. I think it's appropriate with all that's going on. Um, Some of it we're aware of, some of it we're not. Um, I I would want to suggest to you if you're looking at the political climate as you gauge for uh, spiritual warfare, you're missing the mark. It's just smoke just a screen, a distraction, All right? So don't look for the six o'clock news to inform you about heavenly things. There are deeper things going on. Um, I mentioned that we, uh, we've we got a plant going on over at Franklin, so Scott Shepard, who's overseeing that, sent me a Uh, a little photo down by the Franklin Dam of a decapitated chicken on a little stone altar. And within two days, half of the teachers walked out of Franklin High School and the principal and vice principal resigned. All right. So, think the two are connected? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, the enemy is uh, making some statements. Let's go to the scripture. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child, the child being Jesus, grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, so they were living in Nazareth, they would walk or donkey ride to Jerusalem, three days, it's a three day walk, okay, just so, because you don't see that in this sentence, right, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now, that isn't just their custom, that they went up to Jerusalem at the Passover. It was the custom. He was 12. He had become a man in their culture. Right? So they were bringing him to Jerusalem to bar mitzvah him. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem by the Western Wall, when they're doing bar mitzvahs, it is awesome. I mean, it is just such a celebration that goes on. So powerful. So that's what they were doing. They went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him... They returned to Jerusalem. How long did that take them? A day's journey, right? So there's two days, right? Searching for him. After three days they found him in the temple. After three days they found him in the temple. I want to give you a little challenge to do a a study. Just on that one sentence about after three days. After three days, they found him in the temple. I think you'll, you'll be quite amazed uh, just in the Gospels of what that, the life that phrase will, will bring forth. Okay? He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that it would be thus for us, that we would increase in stature and wisdom and in favor with you and with each other. Amen. So the first and key step for successful spiritual warfare preparation is also the most vital step beyond being filled with the Holy Spirit. You must also possess a high degree of personal integrity. Listen to this statement from Jesus as he approached the cross in John 14.30. This is out of the message. I think it conveys a little better. I'll not be talking with you much more like this because the chief of the godless world is about to attack. But don't worry, he has nothing on me. Does he get anything on you? No claim on me. But so the world might know how thoroughly I love the Father, I am carrying out my Father's instructions right down to the last detail. Get up, let's go. It's time to leave here. Right. Jesus knew that his personal walk with the Father would bring him through a battle. At the age of 12, Jesus was most likely taken to Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah. He had reached manhood. And already there is an awareness of God's purpose and calling. A real sense of who he is and what he is to do. But we don't see Jesus emerge on the scene again for 18 more years. Where was he? What was he doing? Well, verses 51 and 52 answer these questions. He was preparing for warfare. First... He was subject to them. Here is the incarnate Son of God recognizing the start of his earthly ministry and the first thing he does is submit to the authority in his life. The result was Jesus increased in wisdom and stature by means of increasing in favor with God and man. Now, the stature that Jesus increased in was not his physical size or strength, but his inner man, his character, his integrity, and his dependence on the Father's provision for his life. I think Jesus was aggressively yielding. Why do I say this? Or watch the sequence of events as Jesus, now age 30, emerges back on the scene. First, in Matthew 3.13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you, do, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us, To fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I just want to reference something here. When the verse says, and the heavens were opened to him, in the Greek uh, makeup of the phrase, it is the same wording that's used to describe the veil in the temple when Jesus gave up the ghost. It says, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. It's the same Greek phrasing. So when the heavens opened, it was a violent display of the, he- of the kingdom of God breaking in, to the affairs of men. This was not, oh, look at a cute little dove, coo, coo. Right? This was God coming in. Big stuff. Second is in Luke 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is also said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, so there were more, right? He departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all of the surrounding country He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." So initially, four things happened to Jesus. Number one, Jesus yields to John's baptism to fulfill all righteousness, and the Spirit comes on him. Jesus yields to the Holy Spirit coming on him, and the Spirit fills him. Then he yields to the infilling, and the Spirit leads him. And he yields to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit empowers him. And he can, with full assurance and biblical integrity, proclaim the fulfillment of the prophetic unction prophesied by Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Where does the Spirit lead him? The wilderness. Why? To be tempted of the devil. Ouch. For forty days. So what does Jesus do? He aggressively yields to his adversary. Now this might mess with some of your theology or ideas about spiritual warfare, but it's written in the scriptures. Right? In Luke four, five, this is our the modern King James Version. And the devil leading him. Who's the devil leading? It's leading Jesus, right, up into a high mountain in Luke 4, 9. And he brought him. Who brought him? The devil brought Jesus to Jerusalem, and he sat him. Now, it seems like the devil's in charge here, doesn't it, on the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus even taught in Matthew 5, 25, Agree with your adversary quickly. While you are in the way with him. Why? Well, for the Jews in that day, who was the adversaries of the Jews in Jesus' day? The Romans, right? So the Romans, who were a conquering kingdom, and as conquerors, they could lawfully insist on a few things which Jesus addresses on the Sermon on the Mount, they were in charge. They had a legal right to what did the devil say to, to Jesus? I can give all these kingdoms to you. They were delivered to me. He had a lawful right okay. matthew five thirty nine but I say to you, do not resist evil, but whoever shall strike you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. A Roman soldier could strike a Jew without provocation. In Matthew five forty, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A Roman soldier could take a coat from a Jew if it was cold. If they were on a march and it was cold, and they saw a Jew with a nice you know, robe over them, they could step out and take that robe right off his shoulders. And Jesus said, don't resist it, give me a coat also. Hmm? Matthew 5:41. if anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two. A Roman soldier could force a Jew to carry his armament or his luggage while on a march for one mile. What Jesus says, if they if they enforce that over your life, listen, go too. Although these things may not have been kind or fair to the Jews, they were nonetheless lawful for the Romans to do as conquerors over Israel. The Jews knew that these activities could not be resisted without severe consequence. Everyone knew the rules. They are the rules of conquest imposed by one kingdom over another. Today we have what is called the Geneva Convention, right, to try to prevent abuse of power in conquest. The zealots in Jesus' day often used the breaking of these rules as a means of instigating civil unrest and causing riots. The conquering kingdom always views these rules as their lawful rights and will usually enforce them with a heavy hand. And they they always apply them to those areas they feel are most important to either control or protect in order to maintain their dominance. Now, there's a whole bunch of lessons in what I just said right there. In spiritual warfare, you have two options. You can get drawn into an emotionally charged conflict with the demonic that can trap you into a joyless, fear-based existence. That's option number one, which is what the book of Jude warns us against. Jude 1. This is out of the uh, contemporary English version. In verse 8, Jude says, the people I'm talking about are behaving just like those dreamers who destroyed their own bodies. They reject all authority and insult angels. Even Michael, the chief angel, didn't dare to insult the devil when the two of them were arguing about the body of Moses. All Michael said was, the Lord will punish you, the Lord rebuke you. But these people insult powers they don't know anything about. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. What do you know about spiritual warfare? They are like senseless animals that end up getting destroyed because they live only by their feelings. Spiritual warfare is not about feelings. It's about identity. It's about who you are in Christ Jesus. Or you can turn to option number two. You can turn to the Lord to fight the battle. What's Ephesians say? Put on the whole armor of who? Of God, right? Don't put on your armor, right? Put on the whole armor of God. Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, now here they are. They have just left uh, Egypt, and they're heading for the promised land, and all of a sudden somebody looks back, and the whole Egyptian army is coming on chariots towards them, and what's in front of them? The Red Sea, right? They're trapped, right? Everyone's freaking out. They're accusing Moses of, you know, leading them astray, and they're all going to get destroyed. So Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Now listen, if you've got oppression in your life, if you've got depression in your life, if you've got addiction in your life, if you've got pain and sorrow in your life, if you're under something and have been under something for a long time and wonder, why can't I get out of this? Gee whiz, I pray, I worship, I go to church, I give, you know, all of this, and I'm still stuck under this. Maybe you're just trying to fight your own battle. Listen to what Moses tells the people. The Lord will fight for you. Why would he do that? Because you're his people. And you have only to be silent. Listen to the words of David as he faces Goliath. All right, you're all familiar with this story, right? 1 Samuel 17:47, And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Can you say that with me? The battle is the Lord's. All right, now we're going to personalize it. My battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. So why is Jesus aggressively yielding to his adversary? He is conducting the intelligence-gathering phase of his battle plan, finding out what areas are critical to his foe. Listen, If you've been in any type of spiritual warfare, deliverance ministry, any extreme counseling like satanic ritual, abuse counseling, anything like that, you find out pretty quickly that the enemy is always showing his hands. He loves to boast on what he can do to people. And he's always giving himself up, making known what he's doing. I believe Jesus uncovers three areas of operation in the final three temptations. That's why I think these three temptations are the ones that are recorded. First, there's personal, the thought life, and the satisfying of the wants and the needs of the flesh. Turn the stones to bread. Right? Gee, it almost makes sense after 40 days of not eating. Right? Nice, round, loafy-looking stone here. Right? Come on, Jesus. If you're the Son of God, you can do this thing, right? And while you're at it, make it warm. You know, put a little jelly in it or something, you know? Galatians 5.16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Why does the enemy want to promote this in your life? Because he wants the life you're living to be opposed to the way the Holy Spirit wants you to live. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, I know you could pull out a half a dozen of those items and say, well, glad I don't do those anymore. But I think if you were really honest, and I'm not going to ask anyone to do this, but I think if you were really honest, you'd find some that you still do. I still get angry. Don't you? I'm still self-centered sometimes, aren't you? Those aren't the works of the Spirit. right? I'm judgmental sometimes and critical of other people's behavior and actions and shortcomings. Aren't you? We all know that this stuff is entertained in our minds and hearts long before we ever act them out. And so we're cautioned by the word of God in 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. That's what Jude said. Don't do this driven by your emotions. It's not about that. It's not about the way you feel. It's about what God has said about you, what God has done for you, what Jesus has caused you to be by the new birth. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive To obey Christ. So, how do you do that? How do you take a thought captive to Christ? I had this discussion with a a gentleman that I'm counseling from Manchester a couple of weeks ago, and he's dealing with a particular uh, issue and uh, something—the lust of the eyes. Let's just call it the lust of the eyes. All right. So. You know, summertime's coming and you can lust after a lot of things in the summer that you don't even see in the winter, right? So he says, You oh, know, it's really tough walking down the main street of Manchester and, you know, the way girls dress. And, you know, he's trying to walk like this and sometimes he catches a glance and he says, Oh, I take that thought captive. And he says, So, how's that work for you? Well, fine until the next one walks by, you know. And then I say, Take that thought captive. I said, so so you're not really taking anything captive, right? He says, Oh yeah, I, I say that. You know, I take that thought captive unto Christ. I says, Oh, you're not you're not doing that. You're just repeating the command. That's all you're doing, is repeating what it says. It says, take every thought captive unto Christ. So just repeating the command doesn't do the action, does it? You have to literally take the thought captive unto Christ. Oh my God. I just caught glimpse of that, and Lord, you know my weakness. You know my propensities. And Lord, what will go on in my mind and in my head and in my heart and, and the destructive force that will be in my life for my loved ones, for my children, for my wife, and, oh, God, would you take this Out of my heart, would you cleanse me of this? I offer this up to you rather than entertaining it in my own mind. I give it to you. Would you handle it? Would you take it to the cross? Would you take it out of my life? That's taking a thought captive. Not repeating the command, but doing the action. And how many times do we glibly throw out a scripture quote and think that we're doing spiritual warfare and it's made no difference in our life at all? If you just want to read the book, then just read it as a book. But if you want to live the book, then do what the book tells you to do. See, I told you I get angry sometimes. <laughs> uh. So just so we understand and apply this admonition properly, the only thought you can take captive is one of your own. This is not a license to become the religious behavior police over anyone except yourself. You can't take somebody else's thought life captive. Deal with your own stuff. Second area is political, personal positioning towards power and glory, kingdoms of the world. Matthew 20, 17, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, now, now, put yourself in this place. You're, you're hanging out with Jesus. You're seeing all these signs and wonders and miracles and phenomenal stuff, and and you begin to do the stuff with them, you know, and you're going out on these little missionary weekend trips and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, Jesus we're going to head to Jerusalem. And then he says, this is going to tell him why. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So there's a third day f- phrase for you. Right, so, so if you were part of this group, what would you say to him? I mean, after all you've seen, after all you've experienced, after all the love you've gotten from this guy, and all of a sudden he tells you this, and you know he's a prophet, right? So he's not making it up. This isn't a story like, oh, feel bad for me, right? You've got to realize this is really going to happen. What would you say to Jesus if he gave you that news? Just kind of put that in your head. So then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Is that what you'd say to Jesus? Oh, you're going to cross? Great! I got these two sons, right? <laughs> They're just hanging out, you know. They lost their fishing business. I mean, following you. I mean, so right? what are you going to do for them? I, what? What? Jesus answered, "You you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink?" They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now, here's the political element of trying to gain a kingdom in your world. And when the 10 heard it, who were the 10? The other disciples, right? Remember, there's 12 of them. So, two of them, the mom's making this plea for two of them. The other ten, I mean, they're not dumbing down. Like, what the heck is this? Are you for real? Didn't you hear? It's my spot. You know, I'm Peter. Should be my place. Right? When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, be aggressively yielding. The third area that I believe Jesus exposes is the priestly. Religion as a means of control. Right? The pinnacle of the temple. So in Matthew 23, 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We have a great propensity in our religious life to lord it over, position. Can be a deadly place. These three areas become our battlegrounds. Battleground number one personal thought life in satisfying the wants and needs of the flesh. Luke 4 2 For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. He was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan feeds on our appetites. Temptation is tempting. That's why it works. But it is not sin. It only becomes sin when acted on. Why is temptation tempting? Because some appetite, some desire, some secret or hidden attraction or felt need is already at work in us. Jesus was already hungry. That's what Satan tempted him with. Forty days with no food, it was legitimate hunger. Do you think he may have also been tired? How about wearied? I mean, after all, 40 days of not only fasting, but 40 days of being tempted by the devil. And God doesn't show us all the details of what that was like. It's kind of like this statement in John nineteen eighteen: they crucified him. Oh, that's too bad. We have no concept of what that was like. Till that movie, right? She whiz. Simple statement and yet so profound and life impacting in its actuality, they crucified him. Forty days being tempted by the devil. A little short sentence. What was that like? Do you ever have to deal with temptation? I mean, really deal with temptation? Any recovered addicts in this place? You know what that's like, right? Getting clean, trying to maintain that, trying to hold on to that, and the enemy hard at work. You can be sure, saints, that Jesus had some personal needs. By the time the devil was done with him, he was hungry. Those stones must have looked pretty tempting to the one who could change water to wine or feed thousands with a few loaves and fishes. Turn these stones to bread, said Satan. How many who hunger will call to me for bread? How many who thirst will look to me for living waters? Bread? Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And Jesus is both. He is the bread come down from heaven, and he is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Bread, I am the bread of life, and I will be kept for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The first line of battle and the most ferocious will be our minds and hearts and will involve our wants, our needs, and our desires, some obvious and legitimate, and others secret and deadly. But the enemy knows what they are. James puts it this way in James 1.14, But each person is tempted. I could just leave it there but each person is tempted. Listen, you are not temptation-proofed. I wish it was included in the salvation experience. Oh, you're saved and, and cleared of all temptation. You'll never be tempted again. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Now listen to this, not by the devil. The devil didn't make me do this. He is lured and enticed by his own desire. And once you begin to entertain that desire, the enemy comes and he gets a hook in that. And he just plays, oh, you're hungry, huh? Got a little stone over here. Yeah." Yeah. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death all the promises of temptation are littered with lies listen how Paul instructs the Corinthian church concerning spiritual warfare For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Your emotions will not win the day. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, And take every thought captive unto Christ. What is going on in your mind? What goes on in your mind? If your thoughts could be projected on the overhead, would they be X-rated for sexual content? R-rated for anger, hatred, or violence? E-rated for just plain embarrassing? Romans 12:2 Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by the testing that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is the good and acceptable and perfect 3 weeks from now we're going to pick up the rest of this storyline In spiritual warfare, because I think it's become pretty obvious the enemy's on the move. And listen, you're his target. He wants to invalidate the church of Jesus Christ, he wants to disempower you from being effective with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to discourage you from making an impact as light against the darkness. He wants to put a basket over your candle and snuff out your life. So we pray, come, Holy Spirit. Establish your battle lines this morning, O God, in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, with our intentions and our integrity. Would you set up the battle lines? Holy Spirit, come. I want to make a very serious invitation this morning and offer to you. If you're dealing with oppression, depression, addiction, if you're dealing with weighty matters that have been destroying your life slowly over years, over time, if you're continually finding yourself saying, why do I keep doing this same stupid thing over and over again? Listen, you can be free today. Jesus Christ came to set the captive free, to set at liberty those who are oppressed By the devil. And if you think a Christian can't have a demon, quite frankly, a Christian can have anything they want. He might be disguised as some act that gives you momentary pleasure, maybe an affair, maybe a drug, or something else, but be sure it's still the same devil you want liberty today, I'm offering deliverance ministry. I'm just asking you to come forward. Be real with yourself. Be real with the Holy Spirit. And be aggressively yielding to the will of God. So I invite you to come if you need ministry. Otherwise you're dismissed. Go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you throughout the day, and remember, Jesus loves you to the point of death. Amen. You're dismissed.